How do you decide who lives and who dies? That's the question at the center of this week's episode of the Pro Se Movie Club, where we are discussing A Time to Kill, Joel Schumacher's 1996 adaptation of John Grisham's debut novel. The movie boasts an absurdly stacked cast, led by Matthew McConaughey as Jake Brigance, a Mississippi litigator defending Carl Lee Haley, who committed a double homicide to avenge a brutal assault on his young daughter. Along the way, Brigance juggles an insanity plea, a venue fight, shaky expert testimony, a nefarious DA, and even the KKK on his path toward justice. This is A Time to Kill. You know, you can win this case, and justice will prevail. But lose, and justice will also prevail. Now that's a strange case. Welcome back to the Pro Se Movie Club, where we are discussing A Time to Kill. Uh, I am Alex Lawson, and with me as always are two people who uh, I don't think deserve to die, and I hope do not rot in hell. It's uh, Amber McKinney. Really glad that's on record, Alex. Yeah, and also Bill Donahue. Oh, hi. I watched this movie. I've never seen it before. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a fitting start, I think. Um, we were all kind of teasing out our opinions in the group chat a little bit, and this is a movie that deals with some incredibly grotesque and unpleasant subject matter, and yet in spite of that is um, a little bit silly, even, maybe even quite silly. So my big feeling about this, my sort of overarching take is, you know, this one is based on a John Grisham book, which is part of why we picked it. We wanted to pick an adaptation of a legal thriller because they're so common in, you know, media. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the kind of book you would have picked up at an airport to, like, take on your plane and pass the time. And it would have done that job. And this movie also feels like that. Mm -hmm. The plot moves so fast and furious and is so all over the place, throwing big events at you, (laughs) that when you're in the middle of it, it's it's entertaining to watch. It really it's compelling in spots. There's yes. monologues that are really good. There's stuff to keep you hooked. But then when you stop and you're at the end <laughs> and you think about it for just a second, you're like, this is a crazy movie. Amber, when you say there's stuff to keep you hooked, do you mean two kidnappings, <laughs> two shootings, one with a machine gun, one with a sniper rifle, <laughs> one stabbing, one amputation, a full-scale riot, a man lit on fire with a Molotov cocktail thrown from a roof? A house that burns down, a man beaten to death, and last but not last but not least, a bomb made of dynamite that was thrown in the air like a football and then detonated. Is I, that what is that what you're I referring to? Definitely <laughs> meant at least half of those. I'm so glad Bill gave us an exhaustive list there because one of my uh, you, you you listed off basically all of them, but for like a staid courtroom drama, a lot of stuff gets set on fire. In this oh movie. yeah, definitely. and I didn't even I, I think I only saw this in full maybe once in maybe high school or something. And it had been a while since I saw it. And uh, yeah, there's some stuff that really jumps off the page at you. Um, It remains watchable um, because... For those exact reasons. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, we're, we're going to air some some critiques here, I'm sure, as we as the show unfolds a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, despite all those qualms, it's tremendously popular. Quick story. When I was in high school and I worked at Hollywood Video, this movie was... Old. Once again... <laughs> brag yeah i know uh i got movies before they were available to rent they were called pre-streets it's not a big deal um anyway and this is in the early 2000s so this movie's old by then and 
nevertheless, our one copy of Time to Kill was like permanently checked out all the time. People love this movie. Or just one sicko loved this yeah, movie. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I didn't uh, d- didn't track the records there. But one one it's probably its most redeeming quality is the cast, which I hinted at in my intro here. Um, and we should probably just start with that breakdown um, because it is uh, there is a wealth of treasures. It's here. basically like, were you famous in the mid 90s? Yes. You are in this movie. Yes. Yeah, so you got McConaughey, Sam Jackson, Sandra Bullock and Kevin Spacey who's now a rightly a pariah. Um, but at the time, they are either huge movie stars or like about to become positioned. I was going to say, it was, right be- it was right before for Spacey, right? Well, no, he already won an Oscar for uh, Usual Suspects. Yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, it was it was McConaughey's first like he had been around he was in Days and confused and other stuff but um as far as like leading man in like a commercial movie this was really uh like the the, the coming out part <laughs> this was the rise of the mcconaughey empire which right. later fell and then was revived with the well-documented mcconaissance yes right. um and then even beyond those th- that's sort of the main that th- those are the starters then you've also casually got both sutherland's Donald and Kiefer. This is Kiefer Sutherland. We are, we are leading the league in Sutherland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Oliver Platt, Ashley Judd, Chris Cooper in these bit roles. And you got even just random people in like one scene parts yeah. like Brenda Fricker, the pigeon lady from Home Alone 2. Uh, yeah, also the- uh, an, an Oscar winner eight years prior. She's just like a thankless yeah. uh, secretary in this movie. She was also the, uh, the, the foster mother in Angels in the Outfield. That's correct, Bill. I think that if you didn't have this- level of stacked cast, this would be an unwatchable movie. Very they much really so. elevate oh, yeah. the material. And um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna say some things about how crazy this one was, but there are moments where there are truly compelling soliloquies essentially that mm-hmm. some of these characters deliver. And I think that is what makes me not hate this movie. But there are th- a few times when they have a really great runs. Don't you think the you know this crazy ensemble cast of like eight movie stars I feel like it's sort of a part of the biggest flaw of the movie, in my opinion, which is that just that there is so much going on and there yeah. are so many characters and so many subplots that you have no idea who to focus on. And it ultimately leaves you feeling almost nothing at the end. Yeah, um, it's it's weird. Like, it's so bloated. And I, I have no inside info, but I have a pretty good idea what happened. And it's that if you're adapting a hugely popular novel and this is a boom time to be doing Grisham adaptations sure. before this you had the, just before this is the client uh the firm pelican brief is in there this is like a huge run of that but i think they just wanted to put a lot of the stuff in the book when smart adapters know which things to leave behind and and which to include i would argue that the reason this is so overstuffed is that no one viewed this as a courtroom drama when they were making it I think they viewed it as a thriller. Yeah. So they threw in any action set piece that existed in the book and embellished them and all of that. Yeah. Because they viewed this as sort of the, as I described the book, as like a page turner. This is the movie version of that. I also learned in my research that in addition to all his uh, legal fiction, uh, John Grisham wrote the novel that uh, eventually became the holiday comedy Christmas with the Cranks. No. Really? Or that I didn't know that. Jamie Lee Curtis and wow. t- uh, Tim what, Allen. What a pull. The guy The guy could do it all. Um, uh, what else? Um, I do want to wrap a little bit about Joel Schumacher, who directed sure. it and is sort of, he's the one putting the tent on this circus, if you will. Um, now he, he, known for two of the strangest Batman films. Well, that's the thing. Well, he had a really interesting career. So he just passed away, I think last year. And he, he sort of made his bank doing really broad, like middle brow 
genre pictures that like your parents would like. This is basically like a prime example of that. You know, he did The Client before, different Grisham adaptation, Flatliners, St. Emil's Fire, like, you know, th- th- this is stuff that just kind of rakes in money and like, but it's mostly forgettable. Then he would do like, later he did like profoundly twisted crap, like 8mm, where Nick, yeah. where oh, Nick Cage right. is investigating the snuff film. Uh, the number 23, that weird Jim Carrey movie yeah. where he's got like a personality Guys, disorder. I think I've seen every Joel Schumacher movie. Everyone you've <laughs> named, I've seen. They're, Absolute they feel Schumacher like they're in head. the air. I don't know. It just feels like maybe you, that everybody's seen. Yeah. Well, and then like Bill said, somewhere in the middle of all of that are these two Batman movies, which is like ostensibly mass market commercial entertainment, but with this very strange pastiche, which like lives on in infamy to this day. Um, he made the Batman where the Batman suit had nipples. Had nipples. That's right. Well, that, that was, is what that movie's known for. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I saw Joel Schumacher in the West Village one time. Uh, cool. It was, uh, and I wasn't like sure it was him. But he had like he, he was a very distinct looking guy. He had like wispy hair and like a like a weathered face. Uh, and I was he was walking down the street and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Joel Schumacher. And then like two seconds later, some other bro up the street goes, Joel Schumacher. <laughs> and I was like, Yes, I still got it. I can spot Joel Schumacher walking down the street. Um, anyway, uh, well, uh, what else do we think? Just in terms of uh, sort of first impressions here. It's hard to have too many impressions because this movie comes at you so fast and furious. Um, Mm -hmm. But my big takeaway was that despite everything I'm about to say in the rest of this podcast, (laughs) I did kind of have fun watching the movie. It Mm. really does, you know, entertain in the way that it's intended to. I did have one more note, actually. So McConaughey is, you know, as we said, his first sort of big starring role um, he had a reputation at this time as something of an airhead, you know, kind of a dummy, dullard, whatever you want to say. However, I thought that came later. Well, but even so, the 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 point is, the man absolutely loved playing lawyers. If you guys, did you guys do any research on his oh. on his legal background? Uh uh-uh. uh Because the very next year, he plays Roger Sherman Baldwin, who defended the the sort of mutinous slaves on the Amistad mm-hmm. in the Steven Spielberg Amistad. He, of course, is in The Lincoln Lawyer, defending a murder suspect, and he plays a district attorney in the Richard Linklater comedy, Bernie. Oh, yeah, uh, which was early on in the McConaissance. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was 2011. I, I will say, having read, I read through a number of uh, reviews of the film from the time, uh, one thing noted by both men and women uh, reviewers was that McConaughey was a handsome man. He, w- I feel like that was his whole shtick at the I time. People were like, "So glad you brought this, this up." This is the next I coming was, of the movie star. I was going to not say anything, but I did write in my notes as I was watching this movie that this was like peak hot Matthew McConaughey. Well, he's he, very and, attractive, in and scene. he was glistening in most yeah. scenes. Sure. They, the it looked South like the, the baby hot. oil costs for this film, the budget must have been through the roof. <laughs> the, <laughs> the South is hot. I'm glad, glad, glad we got that on the record as well. <laughs> um, we'll probably talk uh, as sort of as we tackle the scenes um, about some of the other standout performances of which there are uh, many. But uh, if you guys don't have anything else, should we uh, just get to uh, yeah, get le- the nuts and bolts here? Legal scenes. Okay. We open with what can only be described as a profoundly uh, upsetting sequence where a young black girl is attacked and raped by two men in a pickup truck. Uh, those men are later arrested for this crime. Uh, and then, of course, we meet Carly Haley, who is the girl's father, played by Samuel L. Jackson. He gets it in his mind. Uh, he's heard, you know, sort of scuttlebutt from similar cases in the area that he thinks these guys are going to walk free, either on a technicality or, or some other thing. So he, hi- he he hides out in the courthouse and shoots them as they're going in for a for a for a court appearance. 
And that kind of sets us in motion for the main, um, you know, thrust of the movie, which is that he is then on put on trial for their murder. And he is represented by a local litigator named Jake Brigance. This is where we meet McConaughey. And their first sort of meeting of note is um, when he goes to see him. He goes to see Carly in the jail cell. What's going to happen to me now? There's going to be a preliminary hearing probably tomorrow. After that, Buckley will push for a fast trial. Who's Buckley? Rufus Buckley. District attorney. He's mean, he's ambitious, and he's going to eat this up because of the publicity. But you done beat him, ain't you? Yeah. Not in a murder case. Think I can win? All depends on the jury, Carly. Pick the right jury and you walk. DA picks the jury and you get the gas. So there we have a pretty clear explanation of stakes. Obviously, he's on trial for his life, um, and it's a extremely unsavory series of crimes that has now um, occurred. Uh, what do you guys think about the sort of the we 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 often book the sort of first meeting uh, between the lawyer and the client here. Yeah, um, I really like that this scene so clearly sets up some stakes that we're going to see play out in the rest of the movie. So mm-hmm. talks about the importance of the makeup of the jury. Um, that's really critical, but also how that plays into just the venue itself and how there may be, you know, a tainted jury pool potentially. It also gets at how expensive the case is going to be, yeah. mm-hmm. which you don't hear that in every movie that they they don't always talk, especially in some of these um, criminal cases about how pricey it is mm-hmm. to even get a good attorney and have them see your case through to trial. And also there's some mention of like the publicity this is going to garner. So yep. it really hits at all the key points you're going to see play out later. This movie's like obsessed with venue. This gets uh this is argued over several times during the movie and it goes like basically nowhere. We'll get to that a little later in like with the with the what they got right and wrong. But one thing I do like about this sort of early phase of the movie and it kind of culminates here is the um you get a good sense of the world building and the small town nature of it. When we meet Brigant, like he already knows Carl Lee Haley. He even uh uh, defended one of the perpetrators. He defended Carly's brother. He knows the daughter's name already. Yeah. And that's just sort of like, you know, he's a small town lawyer. We kind of get that. But that adds to the stakes a little bit. I mean, he's it's not like they're best friends or anything, but he's like, it's 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 within his community. He recognizes the principles right away. Another thing I really like about this scene in particular is that it also is paired in the movie with a separate scene where you meet Kevin Spacey as the DA. Yes. And the DA is talking about some of the exact same things that McConaughey is talking about with Carl Lee. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that he's also talking about um, the makeup of the jury and the venue and and sort of he's talking Kevin Spacey's character is talking about it in a nefarious way yes. and how to manipulate things to his advantage. But it does sort of set up the strategy at play. So the ball kind of gets rolling on the case. And that brings us to uh, next scene we want to talk about, which is the very first hearing where um, Carly enters a not guilty plea by reason of insanity, which will become very fluid as the movie goes on exactly which uh, defense they are pursuing. But that is the official plea that's entered. 
And uh, we get uh, something that I frankly wish the movie had a little more of, which is some pretty uh, uh, humorous, like back and forth, real real kind of lawyers talking shop here in in, in open court. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to talk about how the this movie got lots of stuff wrong. But I mean, one thing that really does carry it is the charisma of these leads. And I wish there was a bit more of the back and forth between Spacey and McConaughey because it is sort of electric when they're, you know, ripping on each other yeah. and going back and forth. It's um, it's a good scene and it gives you a sense for how both of these characters are going to sort of behave. It's the, what you want out of a scene setter, out of yeah. a sort of table setter for a legal movie. Additionally, the state opposes any request for bail. Uh, Your Honor, we have not yet asked for bail. Now, Governor Buckley cannot oppose request until one is made. He should have learned that in law school. Your Honor, even Mr. Briganza's meager legal experience should have taught him two things. Number one, I have not been elected governor yet. And number two, he is required to request bail. The state opposes any such request. In the future, why don't we just wait till he makes the request? Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, we would like to request bail. Denied. Uh, This is also where we uh, meet the judge who, I have to say, I don't know if you guys caught the name of this character, Oh, 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 you mean Judge Noose? Judge Omar Noose giving John Milton from The Devil's Advocate a real run for I his mean, money <laughs> in the obvious character name department. I found it shocking because so much else about this movie was subtle <laughs> very and nuanced. Subtle. And um, <laughs> I, I was confused by why they would pick such an obvious name. But that, that was a bridge too far for you. Um, I think that it's so interesting that you guys have picked up on a lot of the big themes here, why these scenes are important, the judge's crazy name. I couldn't stop thinking about how the set design of this movie is also nuts. Did they just copy this courtroom set from To Kill a Mockingbird? It, does it is look almost very identical. And I was like, okay, I get this is a Southern movie, a lot about race here. Yeah, they had the balcony seating. They had the balcony seating and the very large room, yes. which is not a usual courtroom, just in case anybody out there is wondering. Like, <laughs> they don't look like that as far as I know. Women um, are fanning themselves in the back row. Yeah, and a, a lot of this is you know, originally came from the idea that some of these were stage plays that made it into movie form. And that's how you get a courtroom that looks like it's just a stage. Um, But I couldn't shake that. Okay. I get it. Filmmakers. You want us to think about that beloved classic (laughs) Southern legal movie. The black guys on trial in the South. We need we need the references, people. Right. Do you think they'll get it? Do you think they'll understand <laughs> what we're going for I here? I think they asked themselves that question in every scene and said no <laughs> each time because they tripled down on everything. Schumacher's looking at the dailies and he's like, I think we need another balcony. How about another <laughs> one? I think that's I think that's that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so near the end of this scene, we get a clever little introduction to Sandra Bullock, who is playing an idealistic law student named Ellen Rourke. Uh, her name is constantly mispronounced uh, in the Deep South throughout <laughs> this movie. Um, this is what the, this this is what this movie thinks is funny. Very strange. Um, and she sort of slyly slips Brigance some instructive precedents on bail. And she's very eager. She's very passionate about um, you know death penalty abolition things like that. And she's kind of pestering him to join the to to let her help out with the case. He doesn't really want to. And that kind of brings us to um, this crucial scene they have that I think is probably the best written scene in the movie um, where they are sitting at a diner and having um, a very frank discussion about uh, about the death penalty. I'd like to go back to hanging on the court-ass lawn if we could. Are you kidding, right? No. The only problem with the death penalty, Roark, is that we do not use it enough. 
Well, have you told your client Carly Haley has? Carly Haley does not deserve the death penalty. Now, the two men who raped his daughter did. Okay, see, well, how do you decide who dies and who doesn't? Yeah, simple. Okay, you take the crime and you take the criminal. Mm -hmm. Now, say a, a crack dealer guns down an undercover cop. Well, you strap his ass to the chair, flick the switch. You know, for some reason, I, I, I thought you were a liberal. Well, I am a liberal, Roar. What I am not is a card-carrying ACLU radical. I do not believe in forgiveness nor in rehabilitation. I believe in safety. I believe in justice. See, well, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a man executed? Now that I recall. All right, then what I suggest you do is you go watch a man be executed. You watch him die. You watch him beg. You watch him kick and spit the life out of him until he pisses and shits in his pants until he's gone. Then, you know what, then you come back here and you sing this crap to me about justice. <clears throat> well, right, spare me your northern liberal Crimea river. We are the only enlightened ones in the northern oh. hemisphere. Bullshit. I'm so sorry. Yes, you are the enlightened. Yes, you are the enlightened. The reason I say that this is a high point, if not the high point for me, is because for as sloppy as this movie is about like what it thinks and doesn't think about the law and justice, this is about as close as we get to like clear thesis statements from the characters. Now, I mean, they're they're saying them in obvious ways because again, this is not a subtle movie. Um, but between the clarity of the writing and the charisma of the two leads here, um, it's a very effective scene. You know, she's a like I say, a strict abolitionist. He takes a more sort of measured view of the issue, um, and it's uh, it's uh, quite a scene to see. It's just a scene where two characters get to talk to each other without like roaring score and you know zooming yeah. cameras and just the camp of the rest of the movie it, it you know it's just two characters talking and that's sort of a rare respite and i think that's what you're pulling that's what that's what like drew you to it yeah and they um you know they're they're offering their different views on like you know he says like there are definitely there are definitely instances where people should get the death penalty and she um, makes a point of asking him if he's if he's ever seen anybody put to death, and that's something you always hear when you talk to or read about death penalty abolitionists. Who like the thing that really, even if they opposed it on an ideological level to begin with, when you go and see someone put to death, this is what really sort of calls them to action, and um, it's uh, it's very stirring to hear her talk about it. So this isn't in this scene, but we should talk about it since it's. McConaughey and Sandra Bullock um, having a conversation. What is up with the weird sexual tension that they like very clearly okay. are courting when it's been established like he's a married man with kids and doesn't seem to or, have or a like, daughter, you know, uh, that, you know, his wife leaves at, yeah, at they, one point to go, like takes their daughter to be to be in safety. But at no point do you feel like you know, this is a guy who's just going to leave his wife. And then he's sort of low key dating her. Yeah. Like they're, they're like, it's, it's, it's odd. Yeah. I love that you called it low key dating her. That's exactly what happens in the movie. I felt like they shoehorned in her character just to be the potential love interest, even though he's married. And yeah. I, at first in watching the movie, I was like, we didn't need this. But then. Matthew McConaughey is so handsome, guys. That's a good point. He needs somebody. Well, and well Sandy B was Sandy no B, slouch herself at the time. That's exactly right. Um, but yeah, the movie kind of like sequesters Ashley Judd almost for the purpose of like, hey, just forget about that beleaguered woman for a second and focus on these two canoodling. I don't know. And then she, well, we'll get to it. We'll <laughs> okay. get to it in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, that brings us to the beginning of the trial, basically. And uh, there are... 
there are frankly too many courtroom scenes, which I never thought I would complain about uh, <laughs> on our show that's about legal movies. But uh, the standout for me in this sort of early trial stage is when uh, they examine Chris Cooper um, and he plays an officer who was wounded in the shooting, though not killed. He got his leg blown off. Um, and uh, upon the urging from Carl Lee himself, Brigance decides to ask Chris Cooper, this this police officer, sort of what he thinks about Carl Lee's uh, motives and potential justifications uh, for, for, for what he did. Do you think he should be punished for shooting you? No, sir. I hold no ill will toward the man. He did what I would have done. What, what do you mean by that, Deputy Looney? I mean, I don't blame him for what he did. Those boys raped his little girl. Objection, Your Honor. The witness's opinion on this matter is irrelevant. Your Honor, I believe Deputy Looney has earned the right to speak here today. Overruled. Continue. Go ahead, Dwayne. I got a little girl. Somebody rapes her. He's a dead dog. I'll blow him away just like Carl Lee did. Objection, Your Honor! Do you think the jury should convict Carl Lee Haley? I don't answer that question, Deputy. He's a hero. You turn him loose. Jury will disregard. You turn him loose! You're so this, um... I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is where the deep cast bench really does you good. I mean, Chris Cooper is like... I don't know, one of the 20 or so best actors walking the planet. And he's in like this, he's in like two scenes here. But that just was like sort of firing off pearls. I mean, he's had a few, you know, big roles, uh, American Beauty. Um, yeah. But like, you know, a lot of his roles over the years have been little bit parts like yeah. this. Yeah. I, I like that you guys are focusing on the acting here. I know. When yeah. <laughs> this scene is wild. This I know. is a crazy yeah. scene in a legal movie. Of- I mean, what are they even going for here? Yeah. Is this supposed to be like their bid for jury nullification? Is this just like out in the open that they're going to ask this question? Why did no one really object? The judge let this happen. This is not, I mean, I know I'm skipping ahead to all the things that yeah, are wrong yeah, in this movie. Yeah, that's all right, But though. my notes on this particular scene was, yeah, it's compelling to watch. It's, it's definitely yeah. a fun one, but... One second of thought and one <laughs> tiny seed of knowledge about how the legal system works. And you're like... What is happening in this movie? Well, even beyond like, you know, inaccuracies about civil or criminal procedure here, like the movie is like always kind of confused as to whether we're actually doing this insanity plea thing or if we're doing like justified retribution, vigilante killing. Everybody listening to this show (laughs) should just keep that nugget in their mind because we're going to come back to that over and over, especially the end when we talk about what's wrong because the, the... Arguments being made by both sides and the insanity plea itself, I found deeply confusing. Yeah. Um, the whole thing was pretty incoherent. The thing, the takeaway for me was just when he turns around and looks back at Samuel L. Oh, and yeah. he just mouths, ask him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Carl Lee, why don't you, you know, throw, throw me a bone here. Um, so we have some more misadventures after this um, where the defense's expert witness uh, as to who's testifying to Carl Lee's mental state uh is revealed to have a statutory rape conviction. We'll also, talk. just deeply confusing. Yeah. Well, and also Grisham wanted more rape in the book. 
I didn't understand. Like he was like yeah. the whole thing revolves. Like, it's, it's very weird. He's like, you know what? I'm gonna throw another one in there. It's just uh, a side alley of a story where, and then it, yeah. it's brought back up during close. And- oh yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So so we'll get to that. But the next scene I want to go uh, deep on is uh, the famous um, Carly is put on the stand for reasons that mystify me, um, and he's cross examined um, by. The DA, we have, we, oh yeah, we, you know, I was, I, I was ripping on the movie for a judge named Noose as not subtle. We haven't said Kevin Spacey's character's name, DA Rufus Buckley. Sure. Awesome, awesome character name. And he, um, goes pretty hard at Carl trying to get him riled up, uh, poking holes in his, uh, you know, insanity defense. And, uh, I think we all know what happens next. Before you stepped outside of yourself to watch yourself shoot Mr. Willard and Mr. Cobb, were you aware that if convicted, they might be freed in only 10 years? Yes, sir. I heard people say that. Yes, sir. Do you think men who kidnap a child should be free in 10 years? No, sir. Do you think two men who rape a child should be free in 10 years? No, sir. Do you think two men who hang a child should be free in 10 years? No, sir. Well, what do you think should happen to them? What would be a fair sentence? Objection, do you think Your they Honor. deserve to die, Mr. Hilly? Answer no, Mr. the question. Carly, they don't deserve to die. Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've been sort of, uh, you know, crapping on this movie, but I will say that line, that scene, that outburst is up there with some of some of the most famous scenes in in legal movie history. Oh, yeah. And as an audience member, you know, legal hat off here. Sure. You do want to hear this. Like, it feels justified by the earlier, like, really, you know, sad and visceral events you've seen play out in the movie. You want him to scream that as an audience member. So I understand why this is in the script and why it's a famous scene. Mm-hmm. But guys, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, first of all, I'm so over the trope of badgering a witness until they scream something at you. I mean, is... this is done better <laughs> in A Few Good Men yes. than in this context. Also in Legally Blonde. Yeah. yeah. Also in My Cousin Vinny. Sure. Uh, <laughs> there's probably dozens of these because... I get the compulsion to do it. It's very dramatic. Yeah. I understand why they want it, but it's it's a trope we need to retire in part because um, Jake, uh, the Matthew McConaughey, yeah. doesn't object to any of the badgering. The yeah. badgering goes on for quite a while. And beyond even that, Alex, you alluded to this. Why put your criminal defendant on the stand in the first place? What are you trying to do there? Yeah. I mean, if anything... The, the movie at least offers us a lesson as to why you don't do that. Sure. I mean, that because something like this can happen, uh, even if he's like being goaded and it's an argumentative examination and all of that. Um, I also want to we haven't like said anything about Samuel L. Jackson yet. And I think it's it's interesting because like now he's like basically a meme and he hasn't done any like real serious acting and like. 10 years or so because he's been like in the Marvel universe. Really? I mean, longer than that. Yeah, I mean, longer than that. He, he made Snakes on a Plane and that was really the Rubicon for, for <laughs> yeah. like once you've 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 literally jumped you've jumped the the, the snake at that point. The, <laughs> you've jumped the snake inside of the plane. Yes. Right. I mean, it was like a it was a self-parody at the time. Yes. Sure. It was a weird thing. It was sort of a meta thing on his characters from previous movies and his screaming and all that. So Yeah. Well, it's really weird that like th- this is this is remembered as obviously it was in the Chappelle show sketch and all of that. Um but this is like be except for this. This is like an extremely measured and quiet performance. He like doesn't even say that much and when he does, he's like very soft spoken. He's like clearly racked with anxiety and yeah. guilt about what's happened and all of this. Um, but it's a, it's actually like a more measured performance than. But this obviously is what is what people remember, um, and with good reason. So now with the 
defendants' uh, bloodlust exposed. Uh, basically, this shoots. This appears to shoot down the insanity defense uh, once and for all. And I think this is uh, probably a good time for us to talk about the closing arguments. Um, both attorneys deliver them uh, in way. I always think it's interesting in in courtroom dramas where, like, the way in which the closings are delivered are sort of very true to the characters that we've seen. Like when Buckley does his closing very to the point, he just says he's guilty, guilty, guilty over and over and over again, relying on the facts that he himself is exposed. And then we get Bergantz who has basically (laughs) like a two pronged closing. And it begins with uh, a meditation of sorts on why a a commencement speech. Yeah. About why the truth is uh, important. Now, it is incumbent upon us lawyers not to just talk about the truth, but to actually seek it, to find it, to live it. My teacher taught me that. What is it in us that seeks the truth? Is it our minds? Or is it our hearts? I set out to prove a black man could receive a fair trial in the South that we are all equal in the eyes of the law. That's not the truth. Because the eyes of the law are human eyes. Yours and mine. And until we can see each other as equals, justice is never going to be even-handed. It will remain nothing more than a reflection of our own prejudices. So until that day, we have a duty under God to seek the truth. Not with our eyes and not with our minds where fear and hate turn commonality into prejudice, but with our hearts. Huge vibes of Matthew McConaughey's later Lincoln commercials. Just a (laughs) lot of nonsensical sort of tropes that he's throwing down. Yeah, there's there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this scene. First of all, I mean, you heard it in the clip there. He says, um, it's incumbent upon us lawyers, but he's talking to the jury. This seems like some weird sort of B-side is, uh, rumination on the legal profession, which is like a strange thing to be talking about. It does here. make you wonder because this is not a good closing. Despite the movie positing this as a great, like, yeah. clinching it closing argument, it's not. It's not a good one. Um, but is it a closing argument for the thesis of Matthew McConaughey's arc in the movie? Like, he yeah. was not truly an advocate against the death penalty. He was just a lawyer who thought this case was the right thing to do. He's definitely tested over and over again about if he should stick with it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it's like he's talking to himself or talking to us, the audience. Yeah. Or talking. Yeah. Or convincing us to buy a Lincoln, as as (laughs) as Bill said. He's doing something. It's not not entirely. You know, you got to look for the truth. That means you got to look for it. Um, Anyway, uh, so that gets us to the second sort of half of his closing, which is um, a vivid yeah, he like it gets it's very theatrical. He asks the jury to close their eyes and he basically describes the very brutal crime that opens the movie in quite vivid terms. Um, and then, you know, asks them to confront the facts of that ca- of, of this case as though the victim were white. And it is. Um, yeah, what this movie? What do you had, got here, Bill? <laughs> this movie definitely thought it was saying really important and wise things about race. Yeah, it has. I like do not a, believe that it was. Yeah, it has like a grade schoolers, uh, like passing understanding of like, you know, racism sure is bad, and that's right. kind of the extent of the analysis. That the, and listen, pro se agrees. Okay, 
We definitely agree. <laughs> but in terms of like the the themes that are like being examined, they're not really examined. Is, no. is, is is basically what's happening here. Um, though, I mean, that is something. You know, we we were talking before about how, you know, we're relaying these very gruesome details. Um, and that is something, even though that that can seem sort of gratuitous, given the nature of this crime, that is something you see um, just in terms of, you know, litigators, lawyers wanting to sort of hammer home, you know, the unpleasantness of what's being discussed here as, as you know, it can sometimes get lost in the fog sure, of legal arguments. Except that we had spent the entire rest of the trial talking about how this, yeah. the, the earlier rape had not been the subject of this trial and, yes. they had, and they had wrangled over whether it could be admitted at all. We're and getting, now it's the centerpiece of this closing we're argument. getting so close to me talking about what's wrong with this movie, yeah, well, but, but well, I, I will yeah. say one last thing yeah, about sure. this closing. Um, they set up in an earlier scene that Carl Lee basically says to um, Jake, hey, what would it take for you to not convict me? Yeah. That yeah. you need to go in and just tell everyone that because it's a white jury. So it's basically you. Be be you and what would convince you. And I think that maybe informs like why this plays out the way it does because he literally was like, I guess if someone told me that imagine this happened to a white child. Yeah. Which is a pretty harsh view of what it takes to win over an all-white jury. Yeah. I don't know if, how realistic or not anybody wants to make of that, but it's certainly a tough pill to swallow as a movie watcher to think like, oh, we have to go that dark to actually <laughs> get to the right outcome. But here. it didn't hammer home that that was the point it was trying to make. Yeah. It, 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 was conf it just felt confused about that it was trying to make that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, you reminded me that the, the 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 white savior vibes just generally of this movie are yeah. basically off the charts, and that's a good they example. They really are. Of sure. Um, that kind of just goes without saying, but I did want to say it. So, for all of our, we can second guess this closing all we want, but within the bounds, within the four walls of this movie, um, it works. Uh, there's a little girl who runs out of the courthouse, saying he's innocent. He's innocent. We get an acquittal here. Um, and that's ha happily ever after, uh, I suppose, uh, in the world of A Time to Kill. But um, Amber, I know you're chomping at the bit over there. We should I probably just, just... I'm about to melt down. There's so much wrong with this movie. We could have a separate... I mean, let's let's try and keep it somewhat reasonable. I mean, there is a laundry list of stuff um, that doesn't quite fly. Uh, it seems like you got a lot on your mind. I'll give you the floor. There. I, I sure do. Um, I'm going to try to go fast. You guys tell me sure. what you think about <laughs> yeah. each of these bits. But let's just start since we're already at the verdict. Let's start right there. Um, what's going on with this verdict, guys? I don't understand how our final scene of the movie is actually a barbecue at Carl Lee's oh, yeah, house. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. And at this barbecue, it's Carl Lee. It's the whole community. You're supposed to be really happy he's out. Um, and and didn't get convicted. And then Jake and his family show up and everyone's together, you know, at the end. This was an insanity plea. Yeah. If he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, mm -hmm. he would be put into some kind of mental hospital well, or well, institution. Yes. And at the very <laughs> least, he certainly wouldn't walk out uh, of the courthouse a free man moments later. He walked out a free man moments later. He's <laughs> at this barbecue and everyone's like, that's how it turns out. This is why people don't, the, like lay people don't understand what insanity pleas mean. <laughs> well, That often the reality is an insanity plea can get you put in an institution for longer than a prison sentence would have right, been. Right, yes. It's, it really is something that's designed to still take that person who committed a, a crime 
out of society. It's just putting them in a place where you say, oh, they were insane, so they need treatment instead of a prison. Right. And it's a nice alternative if you are facing the death penalty. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but it it certainly does not. It's not a get out of jail free card. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing, I mean, this is kind of this gets to what I was saying about like the 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 nature or the the degree to which they are pursuing this insanity plea. Um it's just very fluid. Um, I also um, thought that um, okay. So remember my little my little uh, colloquy about the about the uh, the the venue fight. Sure. The culmination of that whole thread is when he goes to the judge's house and he's uh, on the bell. He's on he's on the terrace painting. He is painting on his terrace. Again, what appears to be a plantation. Amazing world building. Um, judge Noose. Judge Noose. And Judge Noose says something to the effect of. Uh, not going to move the trial. And uh, I'm pretty sure the Supreme Court agrees with me. No, he said he spoke to oh. one, one or two members. Oh, yeah, that's Supreme right. Court. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got him on speed dial. Um, first of all, even to the extent that that would be the case, um, I don't know. Try it. Klansmen are inciting riots outside the courthouse. <laughs> like, try it. Like, I, at least appeal okay. it. Like, what? <laughs> I agree with everything you just said there, Alex. But also... There is a scene early in the movie where McConaughey is talking about this venue issue and how he wants to file a motion for change of venue, and the judge doesn't want him to f- even file the motion. Oh, yeah. I just, so um, what are we doing This here? doesn't need to be in the movie at all. Uh, that's, that, that's more of a storytelling critique than, like, an accuracy thing, though, I mean, I think, you know— you're not really doing due diligence as counsel if you're not even going to appeal it. I think for purposes of this movie, it also doesn't make sense because if the intended effect of keeping them in this jurisdiction was to end up with an all-white jury so that you can kind of have that play out in the movie. Yeah. You could easily have just done that with, you know, we've already established that Rufus, the DA, is very, um, he's nefarious. Yeah, and He's yeah. got bad intentions. He could just use his peremptory strikes during voir dire and get the same all-white jury. Like, I don't know why we had to go down this cul-de-sac that is yeah. legally improbable I think it, and end up somewhere we could have gotten to. I easier. think it comes from the same place that you, Amber, <laughs> you very uh, – that you identified earlier, which is this was a book and all of these things probably made sense in a 400-page book. They do yeah. not make sense in the four corners of a – <laughs> well, I was going to say a short film. <laughs> it's not. It's but a not a film. short film. Quite a long, Quite a long film. Okay. But <laughs> so before we get too far down this one, I, yeah. ha- I want to tick off a few others that really yeah, I just yeah. couldn't couldn't let pass by. But at the very start of the movie, um, Carl Lee comes to Brigance oh, and yeah. tells him, essentially, I'm going to kill these guys. I mean, he doesn't say it quite so plainly, no, but, but it's very clear what's happening there to the point that Jake even goes home and tells his wife, like, uh, this weird thing happened. Something might go down. And Jake never reports it. Um, I just wanted to raise, like, there's got to be some kind of duty there, right? Well, I, lo- I looked it up a little bit and, um, you know, al- there's there's two different questions here, right? If if you're someone's attorney, are you allowed to report something like that? But he's on... not his attorney. Yet. Exactly. So, yeah. and then what is the ethical, you know, obligation, you know, that is mandatory to report that once you have learned of an imminent like crime involving bodily harm? There's some states that's that have that as mandatory, but again, as you said, it's trickier because it wasn't his attorney. So, right. is there yeah. just a blanket obligation on on behalf of attorneys to report that kind of stuff? Yeah, that I was not able to figure out. Uh, we should probably. I I know you said you had some notes on the uh, examining the expert witnesses as Ooh. to Carly's mental state. Yeah, I don't want to get too in the weeds because we didn't talk about these scenes in particular. But a couple of notes. It does come up that. 
two competing psychiatrists yes. are sort of critical to this trial. And the idea is like which one is going to have the most credibility with the jury. That's yeah. what it boils down to. And um, the way that they discredit the prosecution's star witness is that Sandra Bullock breaks into oh, his yeah. office at the mental hospital that he works in and rifles through his files that are private patient files. Sure. So we've got literally every so many felonies there. So yeah. many. This gets into a category of right and wrong that we have hit on many times during the Pro Se Movie yes. Club, which is there's this is something you could do if yeah, you wanted again, to. Yes. This, this is this is not against the way that the law works. It's it's literally against the law. Correct. And if you were caught, you would get in quite a bit of trouble. <laughs> yes, you would be open to severe sanctions. I would imagine this would swiftly be discovered. She is seen by many people at the hospital. They also have this open testimony in court, which clearly discredits this witness. You have a prosecuting attorney who is a bulldog by all accounts who would probably be like, how'd they figure that out? So it doesn't seem like it would but take a lot to unravel it. The prosecuting attorney also uh, did some some dirty digging as well. You oh, know, that's true. Have, so maybe maybe they wouldn't want to uh, expose their own, you know, oppo research. It's a good point. Yeah, I also just want to talk about some other things to see if you guys understand this movie better than I do. Um, there were the a few spots. Probably no, yeah, but go for it. A few spots where I was like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> so... The DA tries to keep out of the case the fact that Carl Lee's daughter was assaulted. And to me, that doesn't make sense because you'd want to prove the mental state of him being so distraught that he is actively seeking vengeance and premeditation and all of that. You wouldn't want to keep that out as the, the DA. I just don't really understand that. That logic. I don't understand how <laughs> it could be kept out. It seems like a basic fact of the case that this person was, you know, yeah. As the jury, wouldn't you, I mean, isn't the jury entitled to a certain amount of information about like, well, why was he in police custody? That seems like it would be such a hole in the facts of the case that that you couldn't keep that out of. Uh, yeah. Out, I mean, right? I think the, the the issue I think they're trying to skirt, and I can't believe I'm doing something that even resembles a defense of this movie's <laughs> logic, but I think it's more like they're not, as they say, like... They're not there to litigate the like guilt or innocence of the two guys since they hadn't been adjudicated to murder sure. to have murdered this little or, or to have raped this girl. Um, I think it's to do with that. But yes, you would. There are salient facts that seem inseparable that they try to. Nevertheless, I did want to throw out a couple of bones of stuff they get right though, because nope. I feel like sometimes I'm a little too harsh in these critiques of what no. they've gotten wrong. So I want to throw out a few things that I think are actually pretty good in this movie. Um, the first thing is. The idea of that cross-examination of the psychiatrist that did um, – the the gist of it is that what Sandra Bullock finds through her felonies um, <laughs> is that this is a psychiatrist that prosecutors often rely on to say that someone is sane yeah. for purposes of trial. But several patients have then been referred to his institution and he's overseeing their treatment for yeah. their um, actual mental health issues. He's got a little pipeline going. Yeah. So um, there's a nice – bit of that cross-examination to impugn that witness that really gets at the heart of that. And and I liked it because often expert witnesses that show up in trial after trial, they make sure their record doesn't look like this. Mm -hmm. They they intentionally make sure they take a variety of things so that they can't be right. blasted as being in the pocket of just prosecutors all the time. Yeah. Um, well, like like I say, uh, we we could empty the tank here, but I think in the interest of, uh, uh, of brevity, we can... Uh, we get some final thoughts from you guys. Um, uh, Bill, I'll start with you. You said this was this was your introduction to this um, 
to this film. Uh, hit me with a take here. I mean, <laughs> who knows what this movie wants to say about the law? I, I, I think the book probably had some interesting thoughts, you know, about distrust of the legal system because of racism in the Deep South and, you know, that that leads to vigilante justice. It doesn't really come through in the film. The yeah. film just sort of makes it seem like vigilante justice is maybe a good thing and, and you know, that, that you should use the law creatively to reach the conclusion that you want to that you think is is good because even if it doesn't make a whole lot of legal sense so whatever message they were trying to send was muddled and lost in these 350 different subplots that we had to follow (laughs) and the explosions and we didn't even mention donald sutherland's drinking problem like no we didn't we didn't didn't have time for that one no that's another huge digression and i can't stress enough that (laughs) midway through this film someone throws a molotov cocktail off a roof and lights a clansman on fire (laughs) um but so, uh, you know, I, I would say just don't turn to this movie to learn anything about the law. I would say turn to it because it's funny to watch said Klansman be lit on fire. It's funny to watch McConaughey throw a stick of dynamite in the air. It's yes. it's, it's entertaining. There's great actors who are chewing the scenery. I, I had a perfectly good time, but it's I wouldn't say it's a coherent uh, you know <laughs> take on the, on the legal system. Amber, what about you? I think Bill really hit the nail on the head with that that summation. I would say for me, um, there was a period in my life as like a, a teenager where I got really into John Grisham books. Okay. I was like the right age for him to be very popular. And, you know, I did end up becoming a lawyer. So I guess I was hooked into all this legal world stuff pretty early. It did remind me of why they are such page turners. It made me kind of want to go pick up, pick one up now and, mm-hmm. and just give it a whirl. It's fun summer reads. And that's to me how this movie is. It doesn't have a profound thing to say about the law, but it's a fun look at, you know, pretty much every element of the law you can think of is packed into this movie. So it's a fun watch. I uh, did want to say uh, when the book was released, the uh, this was his debut novel and the like full title of certain editions was A Time to Kill a novel of retribution, which is pretty rad for your first <laughs> book. Uh, so way to go, Grisham, on, on that point. Um, for me, one thing I can say about this movie is that it's definitely a movie. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's about the extent of it, really. Uh, it's definitely a movie that was made and screened for people yes. that people watch. Yep. Um, it's really... I, I'm being glib there but um really a testament to the power of movie stars which which we've hinted at a couple of times because like that's what makes it watchable just the fact that like all of these extremely talented people are here just playing jazz doing more like riffing on legal concepts than telling a coherent story as you said bill but i'm still glad we talked about it because um you know this this flirts with a couple of other like sort of um movies that we have done on this show And I think that even um, the way that this movie fails is instructive about what makes these other movies work so well and why it's so hard Mm. to get that alchemy just right. Um, So even though it sounds like we're a little lukewarm on this one, I think uh, I think it's taught us some valuable lessons. And how can uh, you knock it, Alex? I feel like it's the alchemy that keeps pro se afloat as well. Some weeks. That that's true. That's true. Um, Greatly enjoy talking uh, with you guys about this one. Thanks for joining us today on the Pro Se Movie Club. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, for editing today's show, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Ashley Shadow. 
We'll be back next week with the final installment of the Movie Club series, where we will be discussing Philadelphia, the 1993 Oscar-winning drama that tackles workplace discrimination, the AIDS epidemic, and justice in the city of brotherly love. See you then.